Hello, everyone. This is Sherry Rice. Welcome to Access to Healthcare's weekly podcast, where we work hard to bring you local guests on a variety of topics of interest for you and your family. Today, we are discussing a topic that sadly has been in our society for decades, domestic violence. But we're going to talk specifically about the increase in domestic violence during the COVID-19 pandemic. And as always, my guest is Nora Ann Brooklocker, a local licensed marriage and family therapist with Sierra Sunrise Wellness. Welcome, Nora Ann. Hey, thank you. So this is a big topic. Uh, we're going to try and, and uh, sort of bite off a chunk of it today, Nora Ann, and talk a little bit about why the increase in domestic violence. But before we do that, let's... Um, Let's unpack this a bit and actually talk about what constitutes domestic violence. We we all have used that word before to describe something or from a news article, but let's talk about what sets it apart from a regular argument, say, with your partner. That's a great start. Um, I think that arguments and disagreements certainly are very commonplace in relationships, as it is nearly statistically impossible for two people to be 100% on the same page 100% of the time. Um, In fact, differences of opinion or idea can really allow a relationship to flourish as that discussion can lead to growth. However, when that conversation turns ugly, the question then becomes what boundaries are crossed and for what intent? So domestic violence specifically is patterned behavior and an attempt to control or coerce. It is not love. It is having power over another, and it employs abusive behaviors. Um, So in some cases, abusers may not even realize that they're inflicting domestic violence violence on someone. Um, On the flip side, victims as well may not take action against their abusers if they don't realize that the the behavior they're experiencing is indeed domestic violence. So there are many forms that domestic violence can take, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, economic abuse, psychological abuse, stalking, harassment, and cyber-stalking. So. So when you say that they may not even know that they're in an abusive relationship or the abuser may not really see that as uh, domestic violence, do you see patterns where if you were raised in a family where there was domestic violence that perhaps uh, that's your norm and you think that's the way to communicate or that a woman in a domestic violence situation, if she grew up in that situation, that she would just carry that pattern forward, both of them, both the victim and the abuser? Yes, that is um, certainly one way that it can come about. Um, I think that when it comes to having been raised in an environment where there's very commonplace, um, that it just it happens. Um, and, you know, a lot of times, too, these families tend to be very isolated anyway, so they might not necessarily have examples that speak otherwise. Um, and it definitely is, is a much higher likelihood that families where there has been domestic violence in the home 
um, will have a much higher prevalence of the children who grew up in that uh, than replicating those behaviors. Um, and I think as well, you know, when it comes to not quite realizing that this is what's taking place, I think, um, I hate to use this example, but I think it, it's really pretty pertinent and it's one that I, I do often use. Um, and that is, you know, let's say when a, a lobster goes into warm water um, and then you slowly heat it up, they, they don't realize the danger that they're in until it is too late perhaps too late. um right. and then you know if, if, if you so for some of these individuals if they had some of these awful abusive behaviors right out the gate it'd be like oh that's that's absolutely not okay but it can be quite insidious meaning it really creeps up on people and before they know it um you know emotions are involved and they're they're um quote unquote stuck um, and, you know, I think as well, there is this idea, well, if it's not physical abuse, then it's not really abuse. But emotional abuse is, oh, my goodness, it, the psychological abuse, um, like name calling, mocking, intimidation, yelling in somebody's face in a really menacing sort of way, um, placing very little value on anything that you say, putting you down in front of other people. Um, saying negative things about your friends and family, a very common behavior that will happen is what's called siloing, meaning that they try to remove your other support systems. And again, that makes it so that you don't have people to talk about uh, these behaviors with and therefore maybe are less likely to identify that what's happening is just not okay. Well, the statistics are, are pretty alarming that one in three women experience domestic violence and one in four experience severe domestic violence and that half of female homicides are from a current or post-intimate partner. Why do you think, Noran, that this is so prevalent in our society? So I'm even going to add on to that is that one of the leading causes of homelessness uh, for women and children is domestic violence. Um, mm. And that figure, one in four uh, U.S. women experiencing domestic violence, um, the U.S. Department of Justice reports that one in four homeless women is homeless because of violence committed against her. Um, I think that while this can happen to um, women of any income level, any economic background, um, the experience of this uh, type of violence happens much more prevalently in those who are at poverty level. Um, the life experiences of women who receive welfare checks um, is an indicator. About 50% have experienced adult physical violence. Um, so above and beyond increasing risk of domestic violence, the limited financial resources can also keep women and children really just kind of chained into this abusive relationship. Um, so there's there's definitely multiple ways in which this becomes a very prevalent factor in our society, um, but I think as well when it when it comes to looking at the uh, different societal aspects that keep this in place, um, it, it's it's really difficult to talk about. Um, I think that uh, one example would be sexual abuse. Um, Certainly, you know, rape kits and things like that can be done, 
Um, but when it comes to, you know, making an accusation, um, a lot of times women are extremely afraid to do so. And, in fact, some of these numbers might even be a little bit higher than even what we're seeing here with these already extraordinarily high statistics mm-hmm. is because there is a tremendous amount of fear of speaking up and talking about it. Well, I know that um, many people uh, might say, I don't understand why the woman doesn't leave. But I know, Noran, that there are many, many factors as to why a woman stays and that just looking at her and saying, why don't you leave, is really not an appropriate statement uh, for many, many women who are in domestic violence situations. Is that right? It certainly is. Um, I think that there are so many factors that can contribute to why a woman does stay, including, say, distorted thoughts, which can be a byproduct of severe gaslighting. So they, they really question their reality. They're, they're unsure of what's true, what's not. They likely have very damaged self-worth. You know, more, more often than not, there have been a lot of put-downs. There have been a lot of very uh, impactful statements that have really made them think, like, this is probably the best that I can do and who would want me, something along those lines. Fear. Oof, this is a huge one. Um, one of the most dangerous moments is when uh, someone is attempting to leave. So if they're if they're doing their utmost to try to get out of the relationship, there might be major threats like I'll kill you, I'll kill your family, I'll hunt you down, things like that where it is terrifying. And if they have, in fact, had severe physical abuse, that might be the case. Another potential would be if there has been severe physical abuse, they might have a TBI, a traumatic brain injury, which actually makes it all the more difficult. Um, Sometimes uh, the individuals in the... um, a survivor position. Um, they're wanting to perhaps be a savior, meaning that they're wanting to love the abuser in hopes that that person will change. So if I love you enough, maybe you'll stop doing this and that your own self-worth will increase. You know, there's oftentimes a really low self-worth in the uh, abuser as well. You know, that's part of the reason why they're looking for that power over Um, that in some ways they might in life feel inferior, and so they're trying to find those ways and people whom they can be superior over. Um, Additionally, if there are children involved, then um, that can also be really, really scary for the individual in leaving. Um, It might be, you know, multiple different reasons on that, such as they're afraid of going through a custody battle where the abuser might end up actually getting custody um, because that can be really difficult sometimes in court to fully prove. Let's say that the woman has never filed a police report. And so there's nothing on file that there's ever been any issue. And so that might really make it all that much more difficult for them to prove their case and thereby put the children in danger. So they stay. Or it might be that um, they don't want their children to be raised without that parent. Um, And then there might also be family expectations and experiences. So Um, It might be that they fear that if they get a divorce, then they're um, no longer going to be able to go to heaven. 
Um, it might be that the family says, well, you just got to work through it. You know, these are just differences and, um, you know, they're, it'll all be fine. <laughs> and so they think, oh, okay, I guess I, well, I'll try to figure this out. Um, there might, again, be those financial constraints, right? So if you financially cannot leave, then it makes it so, so tremendously difficult. And that is certainly one of, again, the types of abuse, that economic abuse, where perhaps the abuser holds the ability to uh, run the bank accounts or has all the finances under control. And so the um, uh, victim is not able then to, to be able to put together the funds to get a new place. And of course, again, isolation and that one, definitely uh, comes right back into COVID. Well, that brings up, uh, Noran, the issue of COVID-19, because partly we wanted to bring to the attention of our listeners the fact that domestic violence is increasing since the pandemic started. Uh, Some predict an increase of 20%. What has made this perfect storm that we would have an increase in domestic violence? So just, oh gosh, when when all of this first started back in March, this was one of my fears um, with things such as home orders, um, that you need to self-isolate, practice social distancing, all of these terms, quarantine, um, really made it much more um, possible, I think, that people would be in that more contained environment. Um, so in addition to that, I think that, um, let's see, according to Harvard, historical data shows increases in rates of intimate partner violence during pandemics and time, times of economic crisis. Um, additionally, other data shows that domestic violence tends to increase when families spend more time together, such as over the holidays. Um, so being really just kind of caged in, if you will, with one another, with stress levels being as high and emotions as charged as they have been, that really does make for the perfect storm. And quite frankly, there have been nights, you know, 2 a.m. that I have received calls from clients in a panic who are perhaps in the midst of a domestic violence incident or who um, are scared, And additionally, I have absolutely also received audio recordings from clients of domestic violence situations. Um, It's been heartbreaking. I would imagine. I can't can't even imagine that. Um, But COVID-19 has certainly increased, as you say, the isolation, the stress, the economic anxiety, uh, joblessness, the alcohol issue, the lack of resources. And that all, I'm assuming, has uh, played the perfect storm into the domestic violence rate going up, wouldn't you say? Yes. Well, a woman's ability to escape that situation, has COVID-19 hampered that? Yes. So um, I, I think that there have been people whom somebody might have been able to turn to and who they may no longer be as available to be of assistance um, due to those social distancing uh, guidelines. Um, 
And again, I think that this is one of those times where there's also the fear of if we if we do leave, then we're at a higher likelihood, perhaps, of catching this virus. Um, and uh, certainly, like going going to a shelter or something along those lines, um, it might not be as uh, big of an option at this moment in time. There might be major restrictions as far as the number of people that can be in those shelters. Um, and in addition, whether or not those resources are even available depending on the location that somebody is in. For example, people who are in more rural communities uh, might have less access to resources. And the the courts being closed, has that hampered a woman's ability? And then when you talk about the shelters, are they a safe environment in the pandemic? So um, when it comes to the courts specifically, um, I think that it, it might be that it's much more difficult for, for women to obtain orders of protection. Um, and I think that there are a number of different pieces here. You know, even an example would be like, say, the DMV. Um the DMV is severely backed up, and um, one of the potential issues that might also be happening is the inability to, say, have transportation, because they might also be very reliant on their abuser for transportation and being able to go anywhere. So having that set up, but courts as well, you know, being closed down um, or cases being severely backed up. Um, can definitely make it much more difficult for them to leave at this particular time. And then as far as shelters, um, I have no doubt that there are um, community organizers. Safe Embrace is one here in uh, Reno, which I think is a a really great um, resource to uh, go to in terms of finding out the resources that are available. So Safe Embrace itself, I do not believe, is uh, offering sheltering, but they certainly would be able to try to hook uh, somebody up with where they should go and how they should go about it. Um, but as far as the options, um, is it even safe? Well, you know, sometimes it, that's one of the hard parts, I think, of, of this whole experience, whether it's domestic violence or otherwise, there are very difficult decisions to be made at this time. We we discussed, you know, like, should children go back to school? I think that there are certain things where people have to, for themselves, again, it's a very complicated decision to make, but for each and every person to really sit with the decision, make a harm-benefit analysis, you know, and am I potentially at a danger for loss of life here for myself or my children? If that's the case, then, Really, either way you look at it, there's there's danger. So I, I think that it's really choosing which one um, ultimately really feels most in integrity for that woman. Or man, well, I do talk have about... men who have also experienced domestic violence. Yes, yes. Uh, thanks for bringing that up because I know that that does occur. Let's talk about family members who may think uh, from circumstances that someone in their family is being abused, let's say um, a daughter or a cousin or an aunt is being abused in that relationship, what would you be your suggestion to that family member on how they get involved, what they do, 
because I know that's um, a very precarious for family members. Yes. Um, I think that one is not expecting for that person to suddenly make changes. You know, um, even broaching the subject, a lot of times it can be such a private topic that they perhaps even feel shame in discussing with anybody outside of their intimate partner. Um, You know, I I think that sometimes they fear the disappointment of others. Um, But a lot of times they're, if we go back to those stages of change, um, they're, they're not quite ready yet. You know, I I think abusers uh, a lot of times can be just exerting immense control Um, So, you know, some people have this perception that domestic abuse is like a loss of control, but really it's quite the opposite. It's about complete and total control. Um, And many of the the perpetrators do not see themselves as such. They actually see themselves as the victim. Um, You know, sometimes they'll say to their their, um, abusee, that, uh, well, you made me do this, you know, if you weren't so stupid, if you weren't so this or that, well, then I wouldn't have to do this to you. Um, Mm -hmm. And, oh, my goodness gracious, they just have these really elaborate denial systems in place um, to justify and excuse their actions. And um, I think that when it comes to being able to come in as a family member or as a friend, um, I think it's helping them to understand the cycles that are taking place, right? So there is a buildup phase where tension is building. They might have a phase where some of the verbal attacks begin to increase. Um, and then there's the explosion, right, where um, you've been walking on eggshells, you've known something's going on. And sometimes, too, even I, um, I certainly don't want to put this on, on the survivors, but they, they might know the cycle so well that they almost like try to do something just to make the tension stop. Um, and this explosion phase happens, the violent outburst occurs. And then there might come the remorse phase. Um, And again, this is where perhaps the abuser is excusing their behavior. Um, But then, you know, there there might be where the promises are made and they go back into the honeymoon phase of, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'll never do that again. Um, But really, in truth, it becomes much more frequent and the uh, apologies become a lot less frequent. Um, And the cycle oftentimes will escalate. Now, there might be other parts that um, contribute. Some say substance abuse. And again, that can certainly lower one's impulse control. Um, So it might be sometimes survivors are trying to limit the amount of alcohol or other substances that are available to their abusers so that the abuse won't happen. Um, But at the same time, I think that um, ultimately one of the the greatest points of courage is being able to say, I am better than this and what I am receiving. I do not deserve to be treated this way. And one of the the things I'd like to also say is I don't think that there's really adequate ways for rehabilitation for those who are domestic abusers. 
I think that primarily it's going to jail and um, certainly there should be accountability and very clear consequences for actions. But in addition to that, I think it's also having ways to be able to change those behaviors um, when it comes to being able to identify for themselves where it came from and um, for what reasons they've been employing these behaviors to, to perhaps, if possible, learn true accountability. Um, the, I think the numbers are so high is because a lot of times people don't know how to best self-regulate and perhaps it's um, getting to a point where it's like, whoa, I did not see this of myself. I don't want to act this way. Um, but I think that I, I have worked with people in the past where they say I, there's no other option other than jail. And um, I, I think a lot of times it probably will get worse with them going to jail. Um, not Again, not to say that that's not certainly an important option um, and one that should be utilized. But with that said, I think that there have to also be additional pieces in place to support the reduction of this at a societal level. Well, if there's somebody listening, uh, Noran, who has a friend that has numerous black eyes or has a broken bone um, and they've tried to talk to them and they're, uh, they won't talk about it and they make excuses, what would be the next recourse for that friend? Would they call the police? Is there a phone number that they can call to report this? So as a therapist, I have limits to confidentiality. Um, so the first one is if I suspect child abuse, elder abuse, the abuse of a handicapped individual or an otherwise vulnerable population, um, then I uh, am a mandated reporter. However, domestic violence, domestic abuse of somebody over 18 is not included. And the reason being is that that person is technically capable of calling on their own behalf. So mm. that, that sometimes can be really, really difficult because it mm. ultimately will maybe come up to the courage of that, that specific person to make a phone call on their own behalf. Um, my mom uh, was an advocate for survivors of domestic violence when I was growing up, and her work had huge impact on me. She is such an incredibly strong woman. And I'm, I'm truly grateful for her teaching me as well how to be an advocate and to be able to support others in finding a voice to their fears, their uncertainties, and their desires for something more. It's so hard as a friend or a family member to hold space as somebody works through this at their own pace. Um, but if you know you're at risk or you know of somebody who is, um, you can reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline at one 800 799-SAFE, and that's 7233. Um, or if you're unable to speak safely, uh, perhaps you can log on to thehotline.org or text LOVE IS to 22522. They are available, available 24-7 and can work with you to find help in your area. And one last piece is putting together a safety plan. So again, going back to those stages of change, preparation is key because one of the biggest fears is trying to make the move and falling flat on their face and having, having to go back to their abuser. So make sure that you can easily access cash, your identification, such as like a social security card or a driver's license, your birth and marriage certificates, if at all possible, 
credit cards, um, if you have a fake deposit box key or bank information, your health insurance information, and any documentation, photos, medical, or police reports that relate to the previous episodes of abuse. Um, so trying to get some of those very important materials together prior to leaving. And if they have children, it would be getting uh, the important documents for their children also? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Noran, for this very important conversation today. We've been talking about the increase in domestic violence during COVID-19 pandemic with Nora Ann Brooklocker, a local licensed marriage and family therapist with Sierra Sunrise Wellness. Thank you, Nora Ann, for all of this information. Thank you so much as well. Nora Ann has give us, uh, given us the numbers to call. If you know somebody that you suspect could benefit from this podcast, please pass it on to them. And thank you, everyone, for listening. For a list of our podcasts, go to accesstohealthcare.org slash podcast. And stay safe, everyone, and please wear your masks.